This book, The Song of Solomon, is probably regarded today as one of the most obscure and difficult books in the Bible. But it may surprise you to know that throughout the Christian centuries, it is almost surely one of the most read and loved of all the books of the Bible. During the dark days before the Protestant Reformation, uh, in the mountains of Bohemia and of Italy, where the Albigenses fled from the wrath of the Catholic Church, and John Huss led uh, uh, his small bands of Christians uh, up in Bohemia and all, this book was one of the books of the Bible that was frequently read and quoted, referred to, memorized, and was great comfort to them. And again in the days after the Reformation, in the dark days of the bitter persecution of the Covenanters of Scotland, out of which the Presbyterian Church came, under the leadership of John Knox and others, uh, this book again was one of the books most frequently read, most often quoted uh, books uh, among the Covenanters, and it brought great comfort and sustained the drooping spirits of these men and women who were hunted like animals throughout the mountains and glens of Europe. So this has been a very helpful book to many in days that have passed. Now this is the last of the five poetical books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. You remember them. Job is the first, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And each of these poetical books reveals is a revelation of the basic elements of man, one of the basic elements of man. Uh, Job is the voice of the spirit, the deepest part of man's nature. And that's why the book of Job is perennially a puzzle to us. It's, uh, in the words of one of the Psalms, it, it's one of those books in which deep calleth unto deep. And you can't read that book without recognizing the profundities that are there. It's almost impossible to exhaust them. Uh, here is the voice of man in his elementary character, crying out through pain and struggle for God. Job says, oh, that I might know where I might find him. And then the three books of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes form a trilogy which set forth the voice of the soul. The soul is the element in man made up of three parts, its threefold capacity of mind, emotion, and will. And in these three books you have the expression of these elements in man's character. The Psalms is the book of the heart, of the emotions. And in that book you will find every emotion known to man reflected in one or more of the Psalms. Therefore, this is the book to turn to when you're feeling particularly upset emotionally or joyful emotionally. Whenever emotion is strong in your life, you'll find an answering psalm that particularly both reflects your mood and meets your mood. That's why the psalms have always been such loved portions of scripture. The book of Ecclesiastes, as we saw last time, is the voice or expression of the mind of man. It's penetrating inquiry into light. It's searching after answers. And in that book, as you saw, all the philosophies that man has ever discovered find an expression in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it, uh, it is man searching for answers. And the answer, of course, to which it comes, because it only approaches life on the level of the intellectual, 
is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Emptiness, futility is stamped upon all things. That's what the mind discovers without Christ. And the book of Proverbs, then, is the expression of the will in man. That is, it, is, it finds expression in the very, in one of the most quoted of the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. That's the choice of the will, you see. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he will direct thy paths. And this is, uh, uh, this is the mind and the heart together, applying knowledge to the direction of the will to choose the right way. And all through that book you find the, the emphasis laid upon the appeal to the will. Well, if then the book of Job is the cry of the spirit, and Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes is the cry of the soul, then the Song of Solomon is preeminently the cry of the body in its essential yearning. And what is the essential yearning of the body? For love. Therefore, the theme of this book is love. It's an Eastern love song, an Oriental love poem. And there's no use denying that. It's frankly and fully that. But it's a revelation of all that was intended in the divinely given function that we call sex. It's sex as God intended sex to be, involving more than just a physical activity, but the whole nature of man. For sex permeates our lives. In that, uh, Freud is correct. Uh, the, the sexual response and impulse touches us more than physically. It also touches us emotionally and even spiritually. And God made us that way. Nothing wrong with this. This is where Victorianism went astray, in that it uh, it was pushed by the enemy off to the other ex uh, off to the extremism. As I was trying to point out this morning, this is always the devil's activity to push into an extreme position with regard to sex, and it uh, went into prudishness, as though it were some unmentionable subject, as though it were something that ought to be kept locked up in drawers and hidden away behind curtains. But uh, that's not the way you find it in the Bible. In the Bible, sex is every other subject, is frankly and, and forthrightly dealt with, and there you find the setting forth of, of it as God intended it to be. So that first and foremost, this Song of Solomon is a love song, describing with frankness and yet with purity. There's no pornographic nature in this at all. Nothing obscene about it. Nothing licentious. But with an utter frankness, it is setting forth the delight of a man and his wife in one another's body. And uh, as you read it through, you can see how beautifully and how, uh, how uh, chastely it approaches this subject. Now, the book comes to us in the form of what we would call a musical play. And the characters in this play are Solomon, uh, the young king of Israel, this was written at the beginning of his reign in all the beauty and the manliness of his youth. And uh, the Shulamite, a simple country lass of unusual loveliness, who fell in love with the king when he was disguised as a shepherd lad working in one of his own vineyards in the north of, the, of Israel. You remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us that he gave himself to certain expeditions into life 
in which he he tried to discover what life was like on various levels. And evidently on one of these levels, he, he, uh, one of these occasions, he had disguised himself as a simple country shepherd lad. And in that uh, state, he had met this young lady, and they'd fallen in love, and uh, then uh, they had uh, promised themselves to one another, and then he went away. And when he was gone for some time, and uh, the, uh, the girl, the Shulamite here, cries out for him in her loneliness and all, and then there comes the announcement that the king, in all his glory, is coming to visit this valley. And she's interested in this, but hardly knows, uh, is, is not really concerned because her heart is, is longing for her lover. And then suddenly there comes the announcement to her that uh, the king wants to see her. She doesn't know why, but when she goes to see him, she discovers that this is her lovely shepherd lad. And he takes her away and they're married in the palace. Now the book opens with the marriage. And then there's a flashback to the betrothal period. The wooing and the betrothal, and it traces it through. And there's also in this book a chorus of singers uh, who are referred to as the Daughters of Jerusalem. And uh, the setting of the play is in, uh, in Jerusalem, in the capital of Israel. And they're just simply recounting here the events of the courtship and the wooing and the betrothal and the marriage. And these Daughters of Jerusalem supply certain leading questions from time to time, and the Shulamite addresses them on three different occasions. Now, it's interesting to note that the word Shulamite is the feminine of Solomon. Therefore, this lady is, is what we would call Mrs. Solomon. She's the bride. And the story traces for us the event of her uh, encounter with this young man and uh, their courtship together, and it traces the strengths and the methods and the delights of love. Now, the language... If you've read the book, as you'll remember, is highly poetical and figurative. The bridegroom always refers to her as my love. And you can tell the different speakers by that. The bride calls him my beloved. And if you'll note that one little thing about the book, you'll have the key to the various speakers of the book. And as each one describes each other, they see, you can see in their description, the passion and the rapture of love. This is the language of love. Listen to how she describes him, chapter 5. She says, My beloved is all radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside springs of water, bathed in milk, fitly set. His cheeks are like beds of spices, yielding fragrance. His lips are lilies, distilling liquid myrrh. His arms are rounded gold, set with jewels. His body is ivory work, encrusted with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns, set upon bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His speech is most sweet, and he's altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. And she, he describes her in similar language. In chapter 6, verse 4, You are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. Uh, turn away your eyes from me, for they disturb me. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Now you can see how figurative this language is. 
I suggest that none of you young swains take this literally and try to pass this language along. I'm sure you'll be misunderstood. But uh, in the impressionistic approach of this, there's, a, uh, there's, there, there's beauty of expression here. And you can see uh, behind the figures what he's saying. Your teeth are like flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them is bereaved. That means she didn't have any missing, you see. She had a full set. And they'd just been washed, too. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines and maidens without number. My dove, my perfect one, is only one, the darling of her mother, flawless to her that bore her, and so on. And so this is obviously the language of love. Now the book describes, therefore, what God intended married love to be. And it's important to see that. For the full abandonment to one another, the mutual satisfaction which is described in this book is possible only because it was experienced within that total oneness which only marriage permits. And that is strongly emphasized throughout this book by a threefold warning which the bride addresses to the unmarried girls that make up this chorus referred to as the daughters of Jerusalem. Three different times in this book, this bride, turning from her rapture and her delight with her lover, turns to these girls and gives them the secret of this delight. And in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 8, verse 4, she, she, uh, she gives this warning, threefold warning. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you stir not up nor awaken love until it please. That's the secret, you see, of delight like this in marriage. What does she mean? Well, she means do not prematurely stimulate love. Wait till it develops of its own. Do not arouse it by artificial means before it's ready. Let it begin of itself in its own good time. I think it's monstrous to watch the foolish and almost, I could say, fatuous mothers who encourage their children to ape adults in dancing and dating and petting even before they enter their teens. Why? Because they're trying to stir them up to adult activities, the activities of love before their time. And it's like trying to open a bud before it's ready to open. You simply destroy it that way. And we're seeing the results of much of that in our own society. Let me say to the young people who are present here this evening, if you, this book teaches us that if you want the best in love, if you want the greatest, the most, as you put it, then for God's sake, and I say that very advisedly, for God's sake, leave off your petting and your necking and your mugging one another. Until you can say, as this bride says, he brought me into his banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Or you can say, as the bridegroom says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, and jealousy is as cruel as the grave, 
Its flashes are flashes of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. God has ordained, you see, that all these delights that are reflected here be a part of the experience of men and women, but in the relationship which only makes it possible, which is marriage. And therefore, this book is a is a powerful plea for uh, chastity and uh, purity in the life until marriage time comes. But now, of course, we've never heard the deepest message of this psalm until we pass behind this description of purely physical love, a perfect physical human love, to read it as a cry of communion between man and God, between Christ and his church. Now, from the very earliest Christian centuries, this book was taken in that way. Even the Jews took it allegorically in that sense. The preface to this song in one of the Jewish uh, uh, books, one of the Jewish targums, uh, read something like this. These are, this is the song of Solomon, the prophet king of Israel, which he sang before Jehovah the Lord. Now, he wasn't singing, you see, uh, just a purely human love song. He sang this before Jehovah. This was a song about his own relationship to his God. And in the early church, the early church fathers took it in that light. And it was because of this interpretation of it that this song was such a comfort to the persecuted saints of the Reformation and the post-Reformation periods. Someone has well said, if you love Jesus Christ, you will love this song. Because here are words which fully express the, the rapture of the heart that has fallen in love with Christ. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you remember that's the search of man throughout the world for that which satisfies his heart. And the message of that book is simply the world. If a, if a man gains the world, it isn't enough. His heart is still empty, even though he has the whole world. The heart is greater than its object. But the message of the Song of Solomon is that Christ is so tremendous, so so uh, mighty, so magnificent, that the heart that's fallen in love with him will never be able to fully plumb the depths of, of, uh, his, of his love and his concern and his care. That the object is greater than the heart, and we never will be able to plumb the depths. Every passage in this song, therefore, can be reverently lifted to this higher level of a heart enraptured with its Lord. And taken thus, it reveals a very highly significant truth. It reveals that marriage is the key to human life. Now, you who are not married yet, don't be discouraged by that. For regardless of whether you find marriage or not on the physical level, this is still true. What is marriage? Have you ever thought about marriage? I don't mean, now, don't answer that in the light sense. Of course, all of you have, one time or another. But have you ever thought what lies behind the institution of marriage? It's my privilege uh, many times, especially in the month of June, to marry people. And uh, uh, I have to do with certain state laws, certain regulations of mankind that regulate this function. But of course, marriage goes far 
back much further than, than human laws. Marriage is not the product of human society. It's not something that people invented after they began to live together. Marriage goes back to the very dawn of the race. Marriage is an absolutely integral part of human life. And physical marriage, that is between man and wife, is simply a picture of a deeper relationship that is true of everyone. And you find that, for instance, in Romans 7. Remember how the Apostle Paul opens that great argument there in Romans 7 with an illustration of the uh, of, of a human being. He says, uh, supposing that a woman is married to a man, and uh, she, uh, while she's married to this man, she's bound by the law of her husband, it says. And if while she's married to him, she uh, falls in love with another man, she will gain the stigma of an adulteress. That is, uh, she will uh, she will expose herself as breaking the basic law of life. But she says, of course, he says, if the husband dies, then she's free to be married to another man. And why does he say all this? Well, it's an illustration, he says, of what happens in the life of every one of us. We were married, he says, to the old life, to the old Adam. We have been joined to a evil man. That's the problem with human life. Man was made to be mastered, and he simply can't exist without a master. Every one of us has a master, whether we like it or not. And the whole story of the Bible is that it's either God who masters us or the devil, one or the other. This is the picture as we've been trying to trace it through the morning hours, you remember, that uh, both uh, Christ and the apostles alike make very plain and very clear that the whole world is mastered by another force, either God or the devil, one or the other. Every man, every woman. This is why Jesus said no man can serve two masters. You can't really give yourself to both of them. There must be the choice in life. Either you hate one or dis- and despise the other, or cling to one and separate from the other. Can't do both. But you see, man must be mastered. He's made for marriage, in other words, since marriage is that picture of that mastery of one life by another. And all that this book is setting forth, then, is that the man, the master, who was made for man, the man, the master that God intended man to have, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Man mastered by him enters into the fullness and the glory, the most rapturous delights that one could ever envisage, all that God intends for man. And that's what this book describes. As you read the the rapturous uh, delight in one another that that the bride and the bridegroom in this book experience, you're reading a very beautiful and a magnificent description of what God intends to be the relationship between himself and each individual. That's why the great commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That's the first thing Jesus said. The first and great commandment. For out of that flows everything else, including, And thy neighbor as thyself. So you see, this book is a very important book. 
And it deals with a very important relationship. In Christ we have the true bridegroom. And it's a picture therefore of Christ and his church. Much as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5. Husbands love your wives. He says even as Christ loved the church. And gave himself for it. And uh, uh, he goes on there to describe the work of Christ for his church. And then he says again. I, he says this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the love of a husband and wife is a picture of the love of Christ and his church, or perhaps the other way around. The husband and wife is simply a manifestation and a picture of that deeper love, which is God's intention for human life. And in this book, we then have a picture of what God will fulfill in the heart and life of one who loves him. Listen to these beautiful words of the bridegroom to the bride. He says, for lo, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. And the time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig trees put forth its figs. And the vines are in blossom. They give forth their fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. There's the springtime of life. And it doesn't lie in the past. It lies in the future. One day this whole world will experience a springtime like that. And the Lord Jesus Christ, returning at last to claim his waiting bride, will greet her in words very much like that. The springtime has come. The time of singing. The time when earth shall blossom again. And uh, all the curse be lifted. And the flowers appear on the earth. And the springtime has come. And this is the picture of what can take place course in the heart of one who falls in love with Jesus Christ he enters into into springtime the winter the cold winter of loneliness and misery of selfishness is past and the time of the singing has come let's bow together together in prayer thank you our father for this look at this beautiful little passage that sets forth so magnificently all the possibilities of satisfaction that belong that is thy intention for the human heart oh lord that we might enter into this kind of a relationship with thee that our hearts may sing like this concerning thee who has come and won us who has who has overcome all our prejudices and our 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 wrestlings against thee so that we cry out Nay, but I yield, I yield. I can hold forth no more. I sink by dying love compelled and own thee conqueror. In thy name we pray. Amen.